Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you. Great to be back with you again, Brian. And we have some really interesting things coming up this weekend and next week. The last weekend, well, the first weekend of October, actually. And these are in Plymouth, Massachusetts. For many years, I've been a board member of the Plymouth Rock Foundation, purpose of which is to preserve America's Christian and constitutional heritage, but focusing especially upon the pilgrims and what they brought to America. And anyway, last year, 2020, was to be the 400th anniversary of their landing and was to be a major event with speeches and reenactments and all kinds of things like this. But all of this had to be put on hold because of COVID, which, of course, up in Massachusetts, they were especially restrictive about. And so we've decided to hold them in 2021 instead. And anyway, a lot of the talk about Plymouth and 1620 has been eclipsed by something else. And that was the 1619 Project. Now, when I first heard about this project a couple of years ago, I thought, well, did some pilgrims get here before 1620, or what's this all about? But the 1619 Project, which probably most of our listeners are familiar with, was launched by the New York Times and made into a special edition of the New York Times magazine in August of 2019. It was headed by a journalist historian by the name of Nicole Hannah-Jones and consists of some 18 essays. But the basic thesis of the 1619 Project is that the functional founding of America took place not in 1776 with the Declaration, or 1787 with the Constitution, or 1620 with the landing of the Pilgrims, or 1607 with the landing of the settlers at Jamestown, but rather 1619. 1619 was the year that a ship from, I believe it was a Spanish ship, showed up at Jamestown with 20 African slaves. I say African slaves, although some say that actually on the ship's inventory they were listed as indentured servants, but would seem to have the status of slaves. This brought slavery for the first time into the British colonies of North America, and the thesis of the 1619 Project is slavery and racism have been the real story about America from that point on through the present. And Nicole Hannah-Jones was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 2020 for this work. The work is being used as a basis for school curriculum. Some schools have accepted it. Some have very emphatically rejected it. But apparently... From the last figures I saw, it is in use in some 4,500 classrooms. 
And the idea here is to give it a very different picture of what the founding of America was really all about and what America really is today. And it, as I say, kind of eclipses the 1620 landing of the Pilgrims, which in all of the New York Times 1619 project is not even mentioned, except for one phrase, speaking about 1619 as being one year before the Puritans landed at Plymouth Rock. And it seems like she was a little confused about the differences between the Pilgrims and the Puritans. And it advances the view, then, that slavery is the central feature of America's founding and history. Further, it is very distinctively anti-capitalist and suggests that capitalism helped to promote slavery. And the best route to bring about equality and liberty in America is not capitalism, but socialism. In fact, Anna Jones says in her introductory essay, our democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written. And another contributor says, Matthew Desmond, if you want to understand the brutality of American capitalism, you have to start on the plantation. Well, I would certainly disagree with that. The central premise of capitalism is that every person is free to buy and sell or to contract for labor or not contract with labor as he or she sees fit. Capitalism is the opposite of slavery. They would argue that because slaves were considered property, they could be traded and so on, but that is not really what the American ideal is. Now, a good part of this, I would argue, is tied in with critical race theory, and we've talked about critical race theory on Constitution Classroom before, but that is the motivating ideology behind the 1619 Project. Again, a central theme of critical race theory is that America is thoroughly racist, racist to the core, that as critical race theory teaches, along with cultural Marxism, which is almost indistinguishable from it, that History is simply a struggle between the oppressed classes and the oppressors, the oppressed being non-whites and women and non-Christians, gays, poor, and other categories, the oppressors being whites and men and Christians, those who are straight, those who are, they would say rich, but what they mean by that is anybody who isn't destitute. Further, as critical race theory teaches, all truth is subjective, it's a matter of feeling, it is learned only by experience, and hence only the oppressed can truly speak about oppression if you do not belong to one or better yet several of these oppressed groups, then you really have no authority to speak about oppression at all. In other words, if you are a woman, well, you are automatically in one oppressed group, so that gives you some credibility to speak. If you're minority race, that's another. If you are economically destitute, that gives you more. But at any rate, this is what the theme of critical race theory is really all about. And it's the theme of what the 1619 Project is all about. Many historians, including many liberal historians, have very critically attacked the 1619 Project, not only for its numerous inaccuracies in history, but also for the basic direction, 
For example, one of the suggestions of the 1619 project, more than more a statement than really a suggestion, is that the American War for Independence was fought mostly to preserve slavery. And that can be argued very strongly. There's plenty of evidence that American independence actually did more to eliminate slavery or make slavery seem outdated. But anyway, that is the argument. It is true that the British Times would offer freedom to American slaves, but that would be only to American slaves who were owned by those who were fighting for independence, those who were siding with the British, their slaves would not be offered freedom for fighting for the British. But at any rate, again, the 1619 project, I'm going to argue is a very flawed project. And one of the most unfortunate things about it is it has largely eclipsed 1620. And people have kind of forgotten about 1620. We had huge celebrations in 1920, the 300th anniversary, hundreds of thousands of people coming to celebrate that anniversary. This will be a smaller event this year, but we're hoping for a larger turnout. And I might just say that if our listeners are interested in this, I believe some of the events will be live streamed and others you could attend in person if you live in, well, if you can get up to Plymouth, Massachusetts, in time, but there will be some of those this weekend. There will be a ballet, ballet about the pilgrims. There will be a patriotic concert and performance. There will be many lectures Monday and Tuesday about the pilgrim landing and so on and other issues. I'll be talking about the Mayflower Compact itself and its significance for America. Also, I have another lecture that essentially is what I'm giving here, and that is 1620 or 1619 closing with a patriotic celebration a tribute to the military on Tuesday evening. But much of this will be live streamed. And if your audience is interested, I'd suggest that you Google plimrock.org, or if that doesn't work, just Google Plymouth Rock Foundation, and that will get you to the right sources to look for 400 and the 400 project, and that will get you to the right you should be able to tune in to a lot of these events. We hope that you will. And we are back. This is Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, its I can't believe it's been 401 years since the, the Pilgrims uh, touched down at uh, Plymouth Rock. But it sounds like uh, that fact has not escaped the folks who live in that uh, locale. Quite the celebrations going on. That was a long time ago, 401 years. It probably doesn't seem quite as long ago to you as it does to me because I'm a little older, as evidenced by my white hair. I knew George Washington personally. I knew Thomas <laughs> Jefferson and those other fellows. I didn't know the Pilgrims, though. They were before my time. But anyway, what I'd like to look at right now is the question about slavery itself. And since that's the central theme of the 1619 Project, we really need to look at this in more detail. First of all, slavery is an American sin. But it is not limited to America. 
Particularly, it is not limited to the American South. The North was complicit in slavery as well. In fact, well, most of the slaves lived in the South simply because their economy was more suitable to it. But the slave trade itself was conducted mostly by shippers from New England. But slavery was not just an American institution by any means. It was and it is a worldwide institution throughout time. And I say throughout time, including today. In fact, the United States government estimates that in the world today, about 800,000 to 900,000 slaves cross borders from one country to another each year. And that there is much more slavery that is kept within a country than that. Now, when I say that this is a worldwide problem, I am by no means minimizing its seriousness or its significance. As you know, Brian, besides being a lawyer, I'm a pastor. And I preach a great deal about the fact of sin. Sin is a universal thing. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The fact that I say sin is universal certainly does not mean I'm minimizing sin. And the fact that I say slavery is universal does not mean that I'm minimizing slavery. But to single out America, and in fact, to single out the American South for the blame for slavery, I think that's simply inaccurate and also unfair. Let's look at slavery, first of all, in the ancient world. And the Bible makes a distinction in the New Testament between a servant, diakonos, and a slave, doulos. But exactly how much of a distinction that is, is not quite clear. It does involve, however, for the doulos, the slave, forced service. And people were taken into captivity and sold into slavery in the ancient world for various reasons, sometimes as punishment for a crime, sometimes as payment for debt, sometimes in trade for other items. And in some societies, people could be born into slavery. In some societies, if your parents were slaves, then you are born as a slave. Now, in the Middle East, the chief traders in slavery were the Phoenicians. Remember, they were the navigators. And we know the Phoenicians navigated all over the Mediterranean and even went beyond that into the Atlantic. We know that they were up into England and that area, out along the coast of Africa, and possibly even farther than that. But they were the chief slave traders, but the chief slave owners were the Egyptians and the Philistines. And the primary slaves, those who were slaves primarily, were many times Israelites, sometimes Europeans, and sometimes Ethiopians and other black Africans. If you look to the Babylonian Empire and you think of that famous legal document, the Code of Hammurabi, which we used to say that was dated somewhere around 2100 B.C. Now a lot of people think more it's maybe around 1850 B.C., but anyway, pretty close in that period. But the Code of Hammurabi treats slavery as an established institution. The Assyrians practiced slavery, the Akkadians, the Sumerians, and others did. You go further east and you find that in India, slavery was just part of 
the history of India until it was abolished by the British Empire in 1860, although it still does take place in India. But one thing the British Empire did not abolish was the caste system, and that lowest caste, the untouchables, well, they were in a better position than slaves, but not a very good position at all. In China, slavery went back at least as far as the Shang Dynasty, going back to around 1800 BC. We go to other parts of the world, we find, for example, that the Maori, the tribesmen of New Zealand, had slaves, although their slaves were limited to being war captives. But nearby, the Australian Aborigines did not have slaves. Now you look to the Greeks, and the Greeks practiced slavery to a great extent. In fact, in some of the city-states of Greece, slaves would outnumber the free people. And sometimes slaves would have fairly good positions if they were household slaves. Sometimes if they were galley slaves or slaves in the mines and so on, it could be a very miserable life. But the Greek philosophers that many admire today justified slavery. Plato, for example, said that slavery is necessary for freedom. Free men in Athens, for example, would not be able to carry out the functions of citizenship if they didn't have slaves to run their businesses or their farms or whatever else needed to be done, their households and so on. And so slavery was necessary for freedom in Plato's view. In Aristotle's view, slavery was just part of the nature of things. Because to be free, you need to have the power of reason. And reason, Plato, or rather Aristotle said, is operative only in free adult males. It is absent in women. It is inoperative in slaves, and it is undeveloped in children. That being the case, they are not fitted for freedom. And the slaves would be as unhappy being free as free people would be being slaves. Anyway, so the point I'm making out of all of this is that liberals today love Greece, and they love Rome, which had practices of slavery quite similar to the Greeks, they love Plato. They love Aristotle, despite these things. They seem to overlook slavery and can see good in Plato and Aristotle, despite their defenses of slavery. And they can see good in Greece, despite its widespread practice of slavery. So why can't they see any good in America or in the American South? It just doesn't make sense. Now, as we move into the early Middle Ages, here's something that will surprise a lot of people, and that's the as Rome falls, so slavery largely fades away in Europe, and it is replaced by another institution that we call serfdom. Now, serfdom, serfs were not exactly free people, but they weren't slaves either. A slave could not leave the land he was working on, but also he could not be removed from his land. And if his lord wants to sell the land, the slave, I mean the serf, stays with the land. The serf received a share of the harvest. He had the right to marry, to establish a family, to contract, and to inherit. And a serf, by working and saving, could become quite wealthy and could eventually work his way into one of the better classes. 
as we move into the Renaissance period in Europe, and this will surprise a lot of people, but we see the return of slavery. And I'll explain some of the reasons for that in a little bit, but as they, in the Renaissance, look back to Roman law and seek to recreate the civilization and the enlightenment of the Romans and the Greeks, they bring back slavery as well. And we'll talk about that after the break. to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we are with Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Very interesting background on slavery. Colonel, it's, it's clear that uh, many people throughout uh, many historical times have had a blind spot for that particular subject. Well, let's move on. We've been talking about the Renaissance and how the Renaissance actually bought a rebirth of slavery. Part of the reason for this has to do with the Black Death, which decimated so much of the population of Europe and left fields, good fertile fields, unworked because there weren't people to work them. And that's one of the reasons slavery came back. But the interest in Roman law with its imperium or the idea of the modern state with its absolute power and so on, all of this sees a rebirth of slavery in Europe during the Renaissance. But something else leads to a spread of slavery too, and that is the rise of Islam, as we see Muslims conquering the Mideast and North Africa and Spain, going up into France by 732 AD, east into Persia, Byzantium, and so on. And we see Muslim slavery taking place on a very broad scale, at least from the 700s, and at least by the 18, or by the 800s, not 1800s, Muslims began enslaving the people of Africa south of the Sahara and would conduct slave raids on villages on the coast, but also they would conduct slave raids on the coastal villages of Europe. And Christians would sometimes justify slavery as a way of converting people to Christianity. But Muslims, as they had slaves, we talk about Muslim tolerance, that Muslims would not necessarily force people to accept Islam. One of the reasons for that is that the people that they enslaved, transport slaves, primarily European and black African, transport them to Arabia, to Persia, to the India, to the Orient. In fact, it's been estimated that the Muslim slave trade from 650 A.D. to 1900 A.D., totaled about 11 to 18 million slaves. And Barbary pirates who were raiding the coasts of Europe from the North African coast, the Barbary coast, it's estimated that between 1530 and 1780, they took about 1.2 million Europeans as slaves and sold them throughout Arabia and Persia, the rest of their market. Well, 
Thereafter, the British Navy began bombarding Algiers. And also in the 1700s, an interesting incident takes place, and that is that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams are in England, and there they meet the ambassador from one of the Barbary states. And they say that the United States is becoming an independent nation, and we would like to have good terms with the Barbary states. And the ambassador says, well, of course, we would love to have good terms with America. All you have to do is pay us tribute, and then we will leave you alone. We will not harass your ships. We will not enslave your crews or your people. Jefferson asked, well, why should we have to pay tribute? What have we done to offend the Barbary states? And the ambassador answered, all states that are not Islamic are at war with Allah. And it is Allah's will that we subdue them in whatever way we can. Well, Jefferson didn't quite see it that way. And when he became president, he stopped the tribute that was being paid to the Barbary states, millions for defense, not one cent for tribute. And the, the Barbary states declared war on the United States. Jefferson sent the Marines into Tripoli, and, well, you know the rest. But one thing that we've overlooked so far here is black participation in the slave trade, that blacks enslaved fellow blacks long before the Arabs or Europeans enslaved them, and that African tribal leaders would enslave people that were captured from other tribes. Sometimes they would enslave the criminal elements within their own tribes and so on. And the picture that we have sometimes of European slave traders coming into a village and raiding that village and catching people was not the way it usually worked. Normally, they would simply have a post there on the coast and the Africans would bring their slaves to be sold there, or sometimes they would use the Arabs as an intermediary. They themselves would use the slaves in their own work as household servants or for farm work or sometimes as human sacrifices. And then we see all the slave deaths in the transatlantic passage and in the raids and in the marches to the seacoast. Many of them were castrated in the process and being made slaves, and many died as a result of infection from that. But again, Africans themselves were complicit in the slave trade. And then we look at Native Americans and slavery as well. Before whites arrived, some Native Americans would enslave others, and some would not. The Southern Americans, that is the Inca, the Maya, the Aztec, had large slave populations. In fact, the Aztecs had, so had five separate classes of slaves. And you could become a slave of the Aztecs for debt or for a crime or for being captured in war. But interestingly, among the Aztecs, it was not hereditary. Even if you were a slave, your children were free. Among the North American tribes, some practiced slavery, some did not. Some on the West Coast, the Pacific Coast, had very harsh forms of slavery that could be hereditary as well. The Iroquois Confederacy on the eastern part of the United States would serve as a conduit, transferring slaves from Middle America to the Northeast, but generally their slaves received much more mild treatment than those of the Pacific. We know that as we move into the plains and the West, that the Pawnee would sell Apache women and children to the French on the Missouri and the Platte Rivers. Early mountain men in the Rockies 
would report slaves being held for sale by various tribes, especially women, but sometimes men as well. There were slave markets in Taos and in Santa Fe. And as we look to the Atlantic slave trade, though, getting back to this, we find that in the Atlantic slave trade, that about 37% of the slaves that were brought over from Africa were sold in Brazil, and a large portion sold in the West Indies. About 5% would be sold to the colonies of British North America. And North American slaves were probably treated better than those who went to the Indies or to South America. We do see these indentured servants, although they were probably actually slaves, coming to Jamestown in 1619. Interestingly, the first colony to legalize slavery was Massachusetts in 1642 and then Connecticut in 1650. Now, obviously, most slave owners were white and most slaves were black, but not all. In fact, there was a fair number of black, uh, uh, free blacks in America and especially in the South, and many of these were slave owners themselves. And also many whites were what were called indentured servants. That is, to get to America, they were impoverished, and to get here, they would sell themselves to somebody in America who would buy their passage over in return for this person working as the indentured servant for seven years, at the end of which the person would get a plot of land and be a free person. That sounds great in theory, in practice, many times they'd lose track of the time or the landlord wanting to get his full value out of the indentured servant would work the servant to death. I mean, contrast that to a slave. Which do you take better care of? A, your own car or a car that you rent? Well, it was the same. They saw indentured servant as rental, you might say, and as a result, they would sometimes just work them to death and abuse them. Slaves oftentimes received better care. Also, a captain of a slave ship had to deliver his slaves alive and well to the new world in order to get paid. The captain of a ship with indentured servants didn't care whether those servants lived or died. And anyway, so we see many free blacks in America. Many of these had slaves and indentured servants in 1860. In fact, there were 262,000 free blacks in the slave states. 226,000, almost as many, in free states, and many of the free blacks owned slaves. William Ellison, a black slave, for example, purchased freedom at the age of 26. By 1861, he had a thriving business, an 800-acre plantation, and 60 slaves. Many Native Americans owned black slaves as well. In fact, in the South, the Cherokee brought their black slaves with them on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma. We're not told this today because the liberal theme today is that all whites are oppressors and all minorities are oppressed. That's not always the case. segment of today's Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. 
Where shall we pick up, Colonel? Well, we've been talking about slavery, so let's start to move on from the slavery. And the next point I would make is that the 1619 Project ignores what is good about America. Now, a question I would ask is, where can you imagine anywhere in the world or anywhere in history, but in Judeo-Christian America and Europe, where we see free people actively working on the basis of religious and moral conviction to free slaves? I don't know anywhere we see that happening except America and in Christian Europe. Now, the Declaration of Independence pronounces that all men are created equal, and being created in equality is the only firm basis for equality. And granted, they didn't fully practice this, but in the Declaration, they did sow the seeds. Many of the Founding Fathers were very much opposed to slavery. Among those who clearly spoke their convictions against slavery would be Ben Franklin and Governor Morris, James Wilson, Samuel Adams, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, Elias Boudinot, the president of the Continental Congress, Charles Carroll, Catholic from Maryland, John Dickinson, John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Richard Henry Lee, William Livingston, Luther Martin of Maryland, George Mason of Virginia, father of the Bill of Rights, Joseph Reed, Benjamin Rush, Noah Webster, John Witherspoon, John Marshall, James Monroe, William Few, Rufus King. Those are just a few of the founding fathers who spoke out against slavery. And we look to some of those from Virginia who had slaves, but nevertheless expressed their conviction that it was wrong. Washington was personally opposed to slavery and provided in his will that his slaves would be freed upon his death. Jefferson did not free his slaves, although he had spoken against slavery on a number of occasions and said concerning the institution of slavery, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that he will not stay his justice forever. James Madison and Patrick Henry both were slave owners, but they both said that this whole system of slavery is wrong and it needs to be changed. Now, we had something that they put into the Constitution that many have distorted. It's called the three-fifths clause, by which it said that a slave counts as three-fifths of a person. They're not saying that slaves or that blacks are only 60% human. What it is is a raw compromise over an issue. If we're having representation by population in the House, as we apportion how many representatives North Carolina gets, do we count the slaves? The North says no, the South says yes. And when we're apportioning taxation, do we count slaves? The South says no, the North says yes. The three-fifths compromise was just a raw compromise, nothing more, to get over that hurdle, get the Constitution ratified. Without it, we probably would not have had a Constitution. It also provided that the slave trade could not be ended for 20 years. And again, part of this was a belief that left alone, slavery would die out on its own. And of course, that didn't happen. One of the reasons was the invention of the cotton gin that made the plantation profitable again. But the point I'm making here is that many in America worked for the abolition of slavery. And the 1619 Project gives very little credit to 
all those who worked to end this institution. And so many other good things about America. The Declaration, with its recognition of the laws of nature and of nature's God, and creation and equality, and being endowed by the Creator with inalienable rights, a recognition that government is by consent of the governed, that when government becomes abusive, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. The United States Constitution, which has been a model for free nations all over the world, and which provides a way by which we can have sinful people being governed by sinful rulers and working out a system where they do not become all-powerful, but also they can maintain control. A system of limited delegated powers to the federal government, all other powers reserved to the states or to the people, separation of powers, federal, state, and local, and legislative, executive, and judicial, checks and balances, reserved individual rights, and the like. The free enterprise system, which is condemned by the 1619 Project, but which is what made America prosperous, and in fact it is the very opposite of slavery, one of the things the free enterprise system has done besides producing prosperity is it has enabled American generosity throughout the world. One of the reasons why America, more than any other nation, has been able to respond to tsunamis and other crises in all parts of the world is the free enterprise system that has given us the prosperity to enable us to do so. Our free enterprise-based prosperity has also enabled us to build a strong military, a military that has been used to defeat Nazism, to defeat communism, and now to combat militant Islam. It has also made possible the sending of missionaries, the printing of Bibles, and those in the 1619 Project wouldn't care a whole lot about that. But nevertheless, that may be America's greatest contribution to the world. And so when we see this dispute, 1619 or 1776, which is the true founding of America, I'd suggest, how about 1620? Let's remember that some who were aboard the Mayflower were indentured servants to the Virginia Company. And by getting blown off course and no longer in Virginia territory, but now up in Massachusetts, they became free. The Mayflower Compact, one of the things that it states is the authorization of just and equal laws. And what is the basis for saying laws should be equal? Again, I'll say the Bible and its belief that man is created in God's image is the only firm basis for equality. Joshua Berman, in his book, Created Equal, Joshua Berman is a professor in Israel, but he says that the Bible, the Old Testament particularly in his case, broke from the wisdom of the ancient world. He says, if there was one truth the ancients held to be self-evident, it was that all men were not created equal. If we maintain that today that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, then it is because we have inherited as part of our cultural heritage notions of equality that were deeply entrenched in the ancient passages of the Pentateuch, that is, the first five books of the Bible. Point of the matter is, 1620 is really 
in a very true sense, the founding of America, much more than 1619. The pilgrims, when they came to America, they didn't bring slaves. They didn't have slaves aboard. They were not slaves themselves. They established a colony of free people. Now, granted, eventually, as we move into the 1680s and so on, these New England colonies become involved in the slave trade, but that's several generations later. The pilgrims themselves had no interest in the slave trade whatsoever. They established free governmental institutions, institutions under God, and I think they deserve a great deal of credit for this. So what I'm saying in closing here then is that we should not be looking to 1619. We should be looking to 1620. And my hope is that many of our listeners will tune in with Plymouth Rock Foundation. Again, <coughs> go to plymrock.org. Excuse me, I'm suppressing a cough here. <coughs> and look at the events that are going to be coming up. You'll find many of these will be enthralling events. Others, some of the lectures will be, I hope, enthralling, but certainly very informative. Many fine lecturers on the history of the pilgrims and their role in the establishment of America. For example, the trade colonies that the outposts that the pilgrims established in New Hampshire and other parts of New England and how after one winter of practicing communal ownership of property, that resulted in disaster and mass starvation. How after that, according to Bradford's history of Plymouth Plantation, they decided to have individual plots. In other words, they went from communism to free enterprise. And he says, hereafter, there was no scarcity of provisions. Free enterprise and practice. But free enterprise under God, under a people who honored God. And come to Plymouth, or tune into Plymouth, plymrock.org or just Plymouth Rock Foundation, and see what's going on this weekend.